Hello, I'm Charles Bowman and welcome to this, our latest episode of Off the Agenda. And today we're in the Brigade and Beyond Food Foundation, an institution that has trained many hundreds of apprentices into new jobs and given many homeless people new skills. And I'm joined today in a two-part series by a very special guest and friend, Sir Kenneth Elisa, a man who has navigated the world of business and technology for many years. He is a British businessman and philanthropist. Brought up in Nottingham, he won a scholarship to Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge University, and on graduation joined IBM, working himself up the leadership ladder. He was the first British-born black man to serve on the board of a major UK public company, and in May 2015, became the first ever black Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, an appointment made by Her Majesty the Queen. Sir Kenneth was knighted for services to business and philanthropy in the 2018 New Year's Honours list. And it is my great pleasure to welcome him today to Off the Agenda. Can I first of all say thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And it's an absolute delight uh, to welcome you to Off the Agenda. And actually, for me, the first in that it's lovely to be able to interview today a very old friend. Um, our paths have crossed over many, many years and it's an absolute delight to, to have you with us today. And I'm going to start as I do with all our interviews uh, by first of all saying I hope you've been keeping safe and well and also to ask you um, how you have coped uh, and fared through what has been a, a challenging period for us all. Well, I've been ill, quite seriously ill, three times in the last 18 months, two years. First time when my wife and I both contracted COVID, and that was quite scary, but not very scary, because it was at the time when we didn't all know how bad it was going to be. We were in that first cohort. I, I like to be the pioneering age of these sorts of things. So we got over it before we discovered that our lives had been threatened by what we had. And then the second two times I've been ill, after the two, two uh, vaccinations, and like so many people, we had the AstraZeneca vaccination, but for one day, it brought all that awfulness of the COVID um, infection back, and then you forget all about it. It's, I, this is probably an inappropriate point to make, but it reminds me of an undergraduate hangover. You know, at the time, you think you're going to die, and then two days later, you've forgot, forgotten all about it. So the three sort of bumps along the way, and I look back and I think, God, oh, how lucky I have been in the two months of lockdown, because in a sense, whilst, like everybody else, I've not been able to travel, I've not been... I mean, this is wonderful to be here now in London, unmasked and talking to a friend. Haven't been able to do that for a long time. But the worst thing that's happened to me is to be injected and to be not very well for a day. And the rest of it, I've been able, as I, much of the world has, to adapt to most of the things online, doing things by video instead of by telephone. I've written a lot of letters to people. In my capacity as Lord Lieutenant, I've written to lots of people to thank them for the amazing things that ordinary people have done to help other ordinary people in, in extraordinary circumstances. So I, I think I've adapted. And it is extraordinary to see, and I'm sure we'll perhaps come on to it in your various roles, not least uh, Lord Lieutenant, and you'll have seen the wonderful work, I'm sure, undertaken by uh, a num number of people across our great city and across, across the country. That word resilience and that word uh, adaptability, I'm sure, will come... Yes, and, and, told, and community. I, I think what it's shown, it's hard, it's hard to believe, really, if you think about the, the 2019 election, a, a nation divided by the Brexit question. So it wasn't just the nation divided, it went all the way down to relationships, families and so on. And we came together in a matter of days in the face of, 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 the, of the then, the threat of the virus. And we stayed together. 
subsequently. So I, I think, I mean, I'm an optimist, obviously, but I, but I think it shines such a bright light on the core British values. There are other nations where they've remained as divided or more divided by, by what's been happening with the, vac vac sorry, with the virus. But we've come together and I've seen so many amazing stories of people stretching, step, stepping so far out of their comfort zone to help other people. So yeah, I, 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 it's far from being a wholly positive experience the last couple of years, but I think on balance, we, we've come out of this stronger as a nation than we entered it. I, I agree entirely. I'm gonna take you right back. Um, you were born in Nottingham in 1951. Uh, to a Nigerian father uh, and a British mother. Um, and I'm keen to understand what defining experience uh, do you recall from that time around culture, attitude and society? Uh, and how would you say that they shaped your views and your priorities uh, going on from that date? It's very hard in 2000 or 2021 to talk about what life was like in, in the 50s to most people because it's just, it was another world. You know, I was born six years after the end of the Second World War, which makes me really old, but never mind. I was born six years after the end of the Second World War in Nottingham, where I grew up. The scars of the war were everywhere. So my favourite playground in Nottingham, along with my chums, was what we call a bomb site. A bomb site was a place where a bomb had fallen at some point and so destabilised the buildings that the council had then demolished them all. So, I mean, we would play in cellars, we'd see bits of buildings still there. I mean, it was wonderful for small boys. But you talk about playing on a bomb site in the 21st century in our country, it's, it's meaningless to people. And I, and I say that because the historical context of what's happened in our lives is so important. Everybody tries to make judgments about what life was like in the 50s as if it's 2021. Things have moved on enormously since then. But your question goes to, to, to a, a, I think, a more important heart. So my father uh, was... Uh, came to this country, the UK, after the Second World War, met my mother in London, they married, had me, and then he abandoned us and went back to Nigeria. So I grew up as a child of a single parent family, um, white mother, black father, and I was one of the very small number of non-white people in Nottingham and certainly the district where I lived. So I was often the first non-white person that anybody had seen. Frankly, I was the first non-white person that I had seen. And so, so the whole world is, again, it doesn't bear any resemblance to, to life in the, in the 21st century. But I had a, a very strong-willed mother, um, I have to say, bless her, and she had a set of values which were, I would say, essentially rooted in aggression, first, and secondly, a commitment to social justice. So my mother would attack everything she thought was wrong at all times which sometimes was deeply embarrassing when she attacked the headmaster at school, for example, for his poor quality of teaching or whatever it was she'd chosen. But nevertheless, I, I feel I've been imbued by that sense of, sense of justice. So, so I grew up in that, in that environment, playing on bomb sites, single-parent family, rental accommodation, state education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a very happy childhood. I mean, I remember, I can remember negatives as every adult can from their childhood. But in the main, I, I was a phenomenon and people enjoyed the phenomenon. And people went out of their way to support my mother and me. Shopkeepers, neighbours, people, school teachers, clearly, and I am a product of, of that. But, I, but I, I must say something else about the historical context, if I could, because the education system in the 50s and 60s, more relevantly perhaps the 60s, was largely run, it was largely male by the time you got to secondary school, but there were men who had fought in the war. So they had also seen things that, again, 
the current generation of teachers, thank goodness, haven't had to see. And they had views about life and politics and so on that, again, they were, they were rooted in really deep values. So I, one of my favourite stories is at junior school, we had, we had, I'm sure he was a socialist in the real meaning of that, uh, in the 60s, but he, he used to give, well, he gave us an education, state school, poor, poor children in this district of Nottingham. He gave us an education which lives with me today. For example, we would come into assembly every day and he would be playing classical music on the gramophone and then he would talk about the music that we listened to. I remember Einer Klein and Nacht music being explained to us. And he explained that was German and it meant uh, Einer, a little bit, etc. I remember us all sitting there looking at each other. Isn't it weird, these German people, why can't they speak English? Kathleen Ferrier, I mean, all those sorts of things. So this whole cultural background. But one day, will live with me forever. We were probably nine years old, sitting on this cold floor in this school in Nottingham. And he said, this society is ruled by an elite. And the elite will keep it for themselves. So we were all sitting there, we're nine years old. He said, and what you need to understand is you do not need to feel afraid of the elite. He said, even though they speak their own language, he said, and two of the words that the elite like, so imagine nine-year-olds all saying he's obviously finally gone off his rocker. Two of the words that the elite are very, very uh, keen on, he said, are champagne and caviar, nine years old. So we look at this man on the stage, we, where is he going with this really weird story, and it's cold, and etc. And he said, now you're all too young to try champagne, but you're not too young to try caviar. And he put his hand in his pocket and took out a tub, a two-ounce jar of caviar, and the other pocket, a packet of biscuits. And he put a piece on a biscuit for each of our class. So we had to come up, get it, go and sit down again. So, so think communion. And we go and sit down on the floor, and he said, when I tell you, I want you to taste it. One, two, three, taste it. We all go, because nine-year-olds and caviar. And he said, now, he said, you'll never be intimidated when people talk to you about eating caviar. And, I, and you know, that's, that's etched in my memory. So, so the idea of barriers and difficulties and so on, I, I'm lucky to have had a mother and an education which showed me, you no, know, they can all be surmounted. Fantastic. But, I mean, talking perhaps a, a little bit further about edu education, during that period, young black people, particularly males, perhaps experienced, we might say, insufficient uh, edu education and support with a knock-on impact on their own quali qualifications. I mean, you've given a, a little bit of a, your own experience, but can you more broadly speak to your experience of education and how do you feel actually your ethnic roots influenced uh, your education? Right. I don't think my ethnic roots had anything to do with my education, I have to say. But, I, but again, in the 21st century, we have to shine a light back on what the state system looked like. I was growing up in Nottingham. We, at secondary school level... We had three different kinds of school, depending on how well you did, in the, or how badly you did, actually, in the 11 plus. We had grammar schools. I was lucky enough to go to grammar school. We had secondary modern schools. Lots of boys were unlucky enough, and girls, to go to secondary modern school. And then we had another level called bilateral, a word that I now use in my, in my general vocabulary, but then it meant school. And it was somewhere between secondary modern and grammar school, which meant you weren't totally thick, but you were possibly discoverably not thick, and you might make it to grammar school. And so children in that middle tier, neither being one thing nor the other, slaved away, either doing woodwork and metalwork and going descending, or going on to try to get into grammar school, I think, age 15 or, or 14 or 15 or something. I mean, how unbelievably classist that system was. And the children who went to secondary modern schools were completely written off. They would be lucky to get a factory job, was the view. So written off at age 11. So, so I look at that 
then, and I think about the barriers that existed. You don't have to worry about ethnicity and race and colour of skin and so on. These were largely, by mathematical definition, white kids who had been written off. So, so I didn't recognise any particular prejudice again in the education system against people of any particular origin. I recognised a deep-rooted classist prejudice which said, at age 11, you are written off. Thank goodness we don't have those circumstances today. Things have changed a huge amount. And of course, you went on to um, university, you got a scholarship uh, uh, to, to, to Cambridge. And perhaps looking a little bit more at t t today, uh, what would be your advice to a young person who isn't really sure about whether or not they should or shouldn't um, uh, approach higher education in the higher education framework? Well, I think the first thing to say is higher education or university education is not the be-all and end-all. Again, back to my time, it was. You, if you didn't get into university, you were on, you're somewhere on that slippery slope. I, I mean, I joke about this, but there was a, essentially a very steep gradient from completely written off and life, life in prison to a double first in greats at Oxford. And the only question was, where on that did you fall off the ladder? And, and I'm pleased again to say that in this, this world, this time, that's no longer the case. I'm not sure that people even study double first greats at Oxford anymore. And frankly, as a Cambridge man, I don't care. But, but what matters is that people can find their own level and, and realize their own talent. So I think the biggest message that I would give to anybody from my own life story, and certainly now in the 21st century, is university is far from being the be-all and end-all. But if you are, if you are the kind of person who's got that academic underpinning to go to university, you should aim as high as you possibly can. Now, any university is good, and, and, the, and the better universities give you a, a more academic uh, experience. They give you something else there. They give you more social capital. And, and what has become obvious in our world, in the UK, is social capital counts for a great deal. If, if you are able to recognise that caviar is caviar and not worry about it, you, you are a step ahead of the person who's intimidated by the use of the word caviar. So what Mr Spencer spotted in 19, whether that would have been 59 or something, was social capital was the gift that the education system can give. And you, whether you then use that to go off and be an entrepreneur, a, a beef farmer in South America, or a mega academic is up to you, but, but get that social capital. So my message to young people is participate. And I, I talk to some young people, I, I mean, I frequently talk to young people, but I talk, talk to a set of young people who, who won't come out of their comfort zone. And, and by not coming out of their comfort zone, they're denying themselves that social capital bonus that's available in the UK. So I say, no, get outside your comfort zone. Go experience. If you don't like things, I personally don't like caviar, you don't, have to, you don't then have to come back and, and do it again. But it's your choice, not somebody else's. And the biggest crime that can be committed by an educationist in this country is to say, I don't think university is for people like you. you know, no one is a, is a member of a people like you. We're all individuals. If somebody says, Bowman, I don't think university is right for you. You're better at metalwork. That's a different message. But people like you is the worst line to be used. That's a very sound piece of advice and should be listened to many people right up and down the, the hierarchy of life, I'm sure. Um, and of course, beyond university, it, that uh, gave you open doors into, into, into particularly the technology space. I'm keen to see how you made that bridge from university into, uh, into business. Well, I was, well, it's an embarrassing answer to that question, really, so I should, be, I should have a better answer to this, given who you are and my personal experience. So I was lucky enough to have a scholarship from IBM to, to Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, which meant that IBM gave me quite a lot of money every year, which was very nice, and a job in the summer. 
So by the time I had got to graduation, the IT industry was sort of the place I would go, except there wasn't an IT industry then. There was a computer industry, and it wasn't really an industry either. It was a very small piece of life, and proper jobs were in oil and gas or banking or, or whatever. And, it was, as, and I had a whale of a time at university. I drank deep of the opportunities that university gave me. So as we came towards the time of finals, all of my friends are applying for jobs, and I hadn't really thought about it. But I, the one decision I'd made is the last thing I'd do is go and work for IBM, because I'd done three years now, three summers, et cetera, et cetera. I needed to broaden out my experiences. And as we got closer and closer and closer, my friends got jobs, and I had yet to apply for one. And most of them, this is where this goes badly wrong, had, had applied to and had been accepted in big accountancy firms. So the one thing I was not going to do was to become an accountant, if they were all doing that. Um, I've subsequently, of course, learned deep respect for accountants, just to be clear, Charles, and for the auditors from PwC who are listening to this, I'm sorry for even the hint that I don't care. And so, and so uh, I, what could I do? And then suddenly it's all over, and I still haven't got a job, and I haven't even actually applied for one. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to apply to IBM then. So it, it is a pathetic, non-strategic, uh, Ken didn't think about it at all, age 22 or whatever I was at that point. Uh, thank you, IBM. They snapped me up, which was the good news. And, and again, an amazing story, if I could, about IBM. So I went along for my interview. I was already a scholar, so the door was open. And they gave, they gave me a job, they offered me a job. I wanted to be a salesman. They gave me a job as a trainee salesman. And, uh, and a salary, we are talking about uh, 1974, a salary of 2,100 pounds a year. Accountants were getting 1,800 pounds a year, result. So I'm now going to IBM, more money. And I went for a second interview, having got the job. Uh, and the man interviewed me, and I got a letter subsequently. So in light of the interview, and I remember my heart stopped. I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to get the job after all. It said, in light of the interview, we decided to increase your salary to £2,400 a year. 12 or 13% rise, just having done the interview well. Now, why did I tell that story? A, thank you, IBM. But, but secondly, the message for everybody, but certainly young people, is you go for it. You do your best. You, know, you, you, you display yourself. You don't sit and sulk in the corner and get cross about You just do your best. And I, I did my best, and thank you, IBM, as I say, for giving me that huge raise. And so, so it wasn't... I, don't, I mean, I'm making light of it because it was a long time ago, but it wasn't that hard to get started. The technology industry, then and now, is also quite an important different from most industries in that with, there's a deficit of talent. So, so if you can write programs, if you can market computer things, if you can do things, people will snap you up. So don't assume that there are artificial barriers to entry in, in the IT industry because there is a, a huge shortage of talent. So whether you are physically disabled, whether you're female, whether you're all those protected characteristics that people say, oh, actually the IT industry is open arms. And I would encourage everybody to try to find a role in it. You will find it a lot easier than many other sectors. That's very interesting here, and of course, I mean, it's changed a lot. As you mentioned, back in 1974, it, it, was, it wasn't a tech sector at all. It wasn't really an IT sector. Still ran on gas. Uh, it still <laughs> ran on gas. Um, but if I also stand back from it, there aren't many really well-known um, black British individuals in technology in the sort of mainstream media uh, we see uh, to, to today. Uh, you were, of course, able to work your way through IBM and up uh, IBM through the hierarchy there uh, and have had a remarkably successful career both there and indeed beyond. And what, what changes do you think you've seen um, that even you may have started 
uh, through your career at, at IBM. Uh, and would you say the industry in general is waking up to the opportunities of a more diverse work workforce? I can honestly say in 50 years in technology that, that prejudice hasn't ever really been a problem. That habit has been a problem, and that's a problem in business more generally. But habit and prejudice are a toxic mix. But, but prejudice, I, I, have, I mean, I've not really experienced it. And, and, I, and maybe it's just because I've got a thick skin and I don't notice things, and in fact it's everywhere. But it certainly hasn't held me back. And I worked in America, uh, where I certainly did experience prejudice. And, and I worked in Europe, in, in Belgium, when I was general manager of Wang Labs in, in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And I, so I know what prejudice feels like. I've, see, I've seen prejudice, but, but it's not an industry thing. It's, it's not a tech industry. Tech industry is about talent. And, and I think this is a message not now to young people trying to climb the ladder, but to businesses. Getting the best possible talent for your organization is a sort of sine qua known for being in business. It's a competition. So why would you not choose the best possible talent? And, and the answer is because I like to choose people like myself because that reduces the risk of managing them. Yeah, but that's not getting the best possible talent. And you will be defeated by better, cleverer organizations. So IBM spotted that in the times that I was working there. And certainly I'd say that's a, that's a, a truism of, of the industry. So if, you, if you've got it, go push yourself and you'll find there are opportunities. I think a bigger problem, Charles, is for industries that are not so open and for people who don't have the confidence to go push themselves forward. And if there's something we need to do systemically, it's to help people discover their talents and give them the confidence to promote them. That's a point very well made. Any, any industries that you might uh, care, to, care to mention or is that a, a little bit too cute to ask? I, I, think, I, do, I think I'll defer to your superior knowledge. <laughs> but, but actually, if I'm seriously, the professional services industry the profession, it's not an industry, has got it. So, so I see huge programs now to go hunt for talent. I, people who've heard me speak about this before will be bored by this point. But I draw the parallel between football, about which I know very little, and, and, and business. Football says we need people that can score goals or stop goals happening. So they send out scouts to find people with the potential and they bring those with potential and then they groom them to make them superstars and then they live off the fat of the land. Why doesn't business do that? Why does it say, well, what did your father do? What was your university? What was your degree level? As opposed to, let, let me test for your talent. Well, it's been a real honor to speak to Sir Kenneth Elisa today and to hear in this part one of our discussion, his wonderful and inspirational story and stories. Thank you, Sir Kenneth, and thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for part two when I ask Sir Kenneth about the role of Lord Lieutenant of London, philanthropy, being a role model, and the opportunities ahead for the next generation beyond these challenging times. That's all from me, other than to say thank you again for watching and listening, and see you again in part two. Bye for now.